passage. John's reputation, so how the public and the religious elite see John. John's self-image, how John sees himself. And finally, John's religion or his faith, how he sees Jesus. Let's start with John's reputation. At the moment when John appears on the scene, the, the Jewish leadership are relatively comfortable and the people are very much not. Uh, the nation of Israel has, at this point, been, um, for almost a thousand years, they've been subservient to somebody. First Assyria, and then Babylon, and then Persia, and then Greece, and now Rome. And each of those ruling empires handled them slightly differently. The, the Roman approach was to empower the local leadership uh, to administrate the government pretty much however they wanted. There were um, guidelines, you know, limits to their authority, but, uh, and they had to pay taxes. But for the most part, they had autonomy, and that meant that if you were one of the religious elite, the ruling class, your life was pretty good. But for the people, the everyday Israelite, if you will, uh, life was hard. Uh, see, when Augustus became emperor of Rome, he did away with the tax farming system wherein anybody could bid to be the tax collector for a region and extort that population to their own enrichment. And he replaced that with a system, um, a, a poll tax or a census tax and a flat tax on wealth. The intent was to reduce corruption. It, it meant, um, you know, that the average citizen wound up paying more in taxes than they ever had before. So, noble intent, but the result on the ground was problematic. Um, see, the tax farmers like Zacchaeus uh, would tend to target liquid wealth because it was hard for them to convert property into money. If you had, for example, a family farm, a barn full of barley, a few animals, and a wagon, the taxman probably wasn't coming for you because anything you gave him to pay your taxes, he would have to sell. And that meant extra work. So the taxman tended to focus on the elite who were more likely to have cash or coin. But Augustus did away with all of that and said, everybody pays taxes and everybody pays taxes in coin. No matter what form your wealth usually takes. The opening of Luke 2, the famous Christmas passage where it says, you know, Caesar Augustus decreed that all the world should be taxed. That's, that's this change. No more tax collectors. Everybody pairs their fair share at census time. No exceptions. But this exacerbated a pre-existing inequality problem. If you have $10,000 and your neighbor has $100 and the tax is $100, you hardly notice and he's hurting really bad. Plus, the social safety net that God prescribed in the Pentateuch is still a long way from being fully implemented. It's, it is very dog-eat-dog -dog out there. This, this time and place, this society, is the epitome of the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. It is a dark, dangerous time and place. So discontent is growing among the citizenry as the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And there's a great deal of spiritual discontent, too. The God of Israel hasn't spoken in 400 years. There hasn't been a legitimate prophet since Malachi. Plenty of frauds, 
but no legitimate prophets. There are pretty much two kinds of spiritual leadership at the time. The priesthood, which is partisan, hypocritical, and exploitative. Most of the members of the priesthood just leverage their knowledge and their position for personal enrichment. Very few of them have an earnest faith, a genuine faith. And then there are, you know, every once in a while, there's a false prophet who pops up from time to time. And these, this type are radicals. They preach a fiery message of reform, usually of rebellion against Rome. They're attractive to some because, unlike the priests, their faith, their message at least appears to be genuine. What they're saying is crazy, but they seem like they mean it. But they're all charlatans. And they almost always meet a violent death as soon as the Romans believe their rhetoric crosses the line. So that is the context in which John does ministry. Extreme economic inequality, cynicism, hypocrisy, and dead, cold religious tradition. Woof. There are not very many true believers in the first century Bethany. Lots of orthodoxy, lots of posturing, but not very much genuine faith. So, if you were in Bethany circa 29 AD, and this John fella who lives in the desert nearby and eats bugs starts preaching about repentance, what are you thinking? Well, you're probably thinking, I've seen this movie before. All these dudes, they're the same. They show up, they shout for a while, everybody gets all excited until they say the wrong thing and then a bunch of Roman soldiers show up and hang them on a cross and we get back to normal. Now, if you're a religious leader in Bethany circa 29 AD, what are you thinking? Well, probably some version of the same thing, except in the back of your mind you know that if the Romans wanted to, they could hold you responsible if there's too big a crowd standing around when this John guy says the wrong thing. So you decide maybe you should try to discredit him publicly before that happens so that the people see for themselves that he's just another fraudulent lunatic. So you designate someone to go ask him what he's doing. Make him explain himself. Force him to outline an agenda, and then you can look for the holes. But when you ask him, he denies being the Messiah. Most of these crazy guys claim to be Messiah. He denies it. And he denies being a prophet. But he quotes from Isaiah claiming to, that he's preparing the way for Messiah. Huh. And that leads to the second thing I notice in this passage. John's self-image. You see, John doesn't seem to care what his reputation is. He's questioned here in public by the religious leadership, and he passes on a golden opportunity to make a stump speech and make himself look really good. And then in verse 27, John makes a statement of identity. He, he says, explains how he thinks about his own self-worth. He says that there's one whose sandals he is not worthy to untie. That is not a very high opinion of himself. Uh, that job, the untying someone's sandals and washing their feet, it was so degrading, so 
filthy, if there was actually labor law around it, you, you weren't allowed to make someone do it for you unless they were a slave. So like an artisan couldn't make their, you know, um, apprentice do it. And John says, I am not worthy to do it for the one who's coming after me. That is strong language, troubling almost. You might say he has a self-esteem problem. Conventional wisdom would mislead us here and would mislead John. Conventional wisdom would tell this John fella, you know, he needs to meet a nice lady who sees his potential and helps him pick out better clothes and teaches him to believe in himself. He, he can be the star of his own story, not just a sidekick in Messiah's story, right? That's how the made-for-TV movie would go. But that creates a different kind of self-esteem problem. See, there's a pitfall on either side of the self-esteem road. Two ways to get it wrong. An inferiority complex, which says, I'm no good. I'm not worth anything. I don't deserve to be loved. I don't deserve to have true friends. I don't deserve to rest. I don't deserve to have nice things. I don't deserve fill in the blank. Everyone fills in the blank differently. The inferiority complex is a form of selfishness. It's obsession with one's needs, with one's problems. But the solution for it is not, as conventional wisdom might tell you, a superiority complex. Conventional wisdom would applaud how little John seems to care about public opinion. It would say, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks of you. It only matters what? you think of you. Conventional wisdom would solve an inferiority complex with a superiority complex, but that's not a solution. That's just replacing one dysfunction with another as a different form of selfishness. The solution to an inferiority complex is not to become filled with the thoughts of your own greatness, your own value. That's pride in its more well-known form. Both of these self-concept errors are pride. Both of them are forms of self-centeredness. The inferiority complex says, I can't have fill in the blank because I don't deserve it. The superiority complex says, I can have, I should have, I will have fill in the blank because I do deserve it. Both of them seek self-worth from accomplishment and look, at, look for value intrinsic to the individual, and that is a mistake. Both are self-centered, and that is sin. John's self-concept avoids the error in both. We'll call it self-forgetfulness, maybe. He says, I'm unworthy. I don't deserve all this attention I've been getting. I'd like to introduce you to the person who does. I'm unworthy, and yet, here I am. <laughs> That's a kind of humility which is unique to Christianity. It's unique. It's, it's remarkable for a person to say, I am sinful, my heart is desperately wicked, I'm unworthy of the good things in my life, and yet, here they are, praise be to God, I will enjoy them and share them recklessly with those around me. The only way to have that kind of self-concept is to hear a verdict outside myself, other than public opinion. Christian, when deciding your worth, you should not be listening to your inner monologue. You should not be listening to public opinion. 
you cannot build a healthy self-concept in your Instagram feed. Discredit both of those voices and listen instead to the words of God as He speaks over you. Hear Him say that though your sins be like scarlet, He will make you whiter than snow. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means tuning your ear to the voice of God instead of these other things. Ignore public opinion. Ignore the conventional wisdom of the made-for-TV movie. Ignore even your own inner monologue and trust the words of God instead. The root of spiritual maturity is this. An ever-diminishing opinion of self combined with an ever-expanding opinion of God. As your knowledge of God, your esteem of God grows, your opinion of yourself must shrink. And as your opinion of yourself shrinks, your opinion of the God who chose to love you must and should rise. And in this little snapshot of John, we see that he's a very low opinion, even dismissive or forgetful opinion of himself, and a soaring opinion of Jesus. Which leads us to the final observation I'd like to make of this passage, John's religion or John, John's opinion of Jesus. One of the sources that I read in preparation for today points out that John's use of the word behold is interesting. He doesn't want or need anyone to behold him. He doesn't say, behold, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. It, he is aware of his unworthiness. He doesn't run from it or hide it. When asked about it directly, he doesn't deny it, but he doesn't draw attention to it. He doesn't call on anyone to behold him or his unworthiness. He doesn't even pay much attention to his own unworthiness. What he's paying attention to and what he thinks everyone else needs to pay attention to is Jesus. Behold the Lamb. Don't behold me. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. Now, what, what does that mean? When we talk about Jesus as the Lamb of God, we're saying that He is a voluntary substitute. It's an old story. Many hundreds of years earlier, when the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, God sent out His angel of death into Egypt as a judgment on the wickedness of that culture. The angel of death was bringing a plague to every home and was going to strike down and kill the firstborn son in every household. And God said, here's the thing though, if you kill a lamb and smear the doorposts of your house with its blood, the death angel will pass by and your house will be unharmed. This is the Jewish feast of Passover. It will pass over and not harm anyone inside. That's the message. If a lamb is slain, you won't have to die. And all throughout the Old Testament, there are glimpses of what's coming, little flashes of the lamb. In Isaiah 53, it says that someday someone's going to come and by his stripes we will be healed. He'll, he'll take onto himself the iniquity of us all, and like a lamb, he will be silent and not open his mouth. These are all allusions to the Messiah, but nobody, when John arrives, had put them all together yet. 
Now, can you imagine how John the Baptist felt on this day when by divine revelation, it all comes together for him, all the pieces click into place. He looks out and suddenly he says, behold, the Lamb of God, not, not a Lamb of God, that's all we've ever had is a Lamb of God, but I see the Lamb of God. Now I get it. The reason our firstborn children in Egypt were saved, not because of some furry, cute little animals that were slain, it was because God put forth His firstborn to be slain. I get it. I get it. The, the lamb in place of our firstborn was actually God's firstborn. Behold the lamb of God. I, I see it. It's all coming together. I get it now. The substitute, the one that stands in my place, the one who's done everything I need, he's paid everything I owe, he stands in my place. And not only that, he does it voluntarily. Why a lamb? There's a lot of animals sacrificed in the Old Testament. Why a lamb? Why not a bull or a turtle dove? What's so special about a lamb? Well, lambs don't buck against their murderers. Lambs don't open their mouth. They're quiet when you slaughter them. They don't bite. They don't scratch. They don't run away. They lie still. You don't so much as take a lamb's life as much as it gives its life to you. The point is that Jesus' death was voluntary. There's this moment the night before Jesus dies. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. His disciples are a little further away asleep. And um, he had, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're, you're in a, what you know is a really important moment of time, but you're too busy doing it that you don't like, stop to think about it. And then you just have like a lull in the activity and you're suddenly very aware of what's going on. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. I had a moment like that at my wedding, actually. I got locked in a closet for a little while and had some unexpected alone time. It's a funny story I'll tell you later. But that's kind of what happens to Jesus here. Is he's, you know, he's just like going about the business of healing people and doing ministry and teaching. And then he's got this moment... Garden of Gethsemane, where everything's still and quiet. There's nothing to do. There's no sermon to prepare for. There's nobody to heal. There's no questions to answer. He's alone, and he's praying. And he's sitting there, Jesus is, and he's realizing in a, maybe in a new way what he's going to be going through, the incredible pain he's going to experience the fact that God's going to pour out his wrath on Jesus, that he's going to pay everything that we owe. And he has this opportunity to walk away. You know, he could have said, why am I doing this? This is hard. I, why, am I, why am I going to leave my infinite glory, joy, and comfort and take into my heart this burning agony for these people who can't even stay awake with me in my moment of greatest need, who will never repay me, who show me no gratitude, who didn't even ask me to come and do this. Why should I do that? Instead, he says, not my will, 
but thine be done. Father, I will be the lamb. I'll be the lamb. This is astonishing. God came to Abraham and said, or to Adam and said, Adam, if you obey me, you will live. And God came to Jesus and said, son, if you obey me, I will crush you to powder. Give yourself to me and I will put on you all of my wrath. And Jesus says, I'll be the lamb. And in this moment, John the Baptist put it all together. He understood for the first time. And because of that, everything in his life changed. Everything. John, by divine revelation, comes to understand that, yes, I'm unworthy. But there's no way that's going to come between me and God. Because Jesus has done everything for me. Everything. He did it voluntarily. His love for me melts away all the hardness of my my heart, all the mistakes that I've made, all of my pride and self-centeredness. Everything in my life that's prone to self-pity or self-consciousness is written away by the love of God. Everything in my heart that's prone to self-confidence or superiority is taken away. I, I don't think of myself anymore. My ego receives this one-two punch. Yes, I am unworthy, and yet still Jesus loved me. Look at what he's, God has done for me. So be silent, ego, and it goes to sleep. Wow. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. God, we confess that we are self-centered people. We are obsessed with our reputation, with our wardrobe, with our lawn. We spend so much time looking at ourselves that we don't, very rarely, do we get to see you and what you've done. I pray that this Christmas season would be one in which our attention is riveted to your love, at the knowledge of, the awareness of what you have done for us, despite our unworthiness, would change everything about us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.